episode 106 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we left off by talking about how the common turn China specialist Pavel Myth had gotten two of the top Chinese communist leaders, Chu Chubai and Zhang Guodao, to reconcile with each other for the good of the party as a whole, mainly through a kind of coercion using the Comintern's authority in a way that Zhang and Chu both resented. Chu had been the main representative of a political line uh, of striking out with armed struggle wherever and whenever possible, a line that was characterized at the Sixth Party Congress as putschist and which would come to be referred to, even by Chu himself, as having been a line of blind actionism. Uh, We explored the content of this political line back in episodes 61 and 73. Whereas uh, Zhang Guotao uh, had a more conservative orientation and was known for his emphasis on the need for organizing workers and unions. So, at the point we left off last episode, working groups were formed which drafted a variety of resolutions and documents, which were then discussed and sometimes amended and approved by the Congress. Some of these resolutions were not ever formally approved and have come down to us only in draft forms. I listed them last episode, but just to refresh your memory, the resolutions that have come down to us today from the Congress include resolutions on organization, the trade union movement, the land question, the peasant question, on the question of Soviets or the local organization of political power in areas controlled by the communists, on military affairs, on propaganda work, on the work of the Communist Youth League, on the women's movement, a resolution to fix a regular Memorial Day to commemorate the Guangzhou Uprising, a resolution on the need to draft a party program, and a resolution on the question of national minorities. There was also a political resolution which was drafted, which was based on Bukharin's report to the Congress, and a new party constitution was also drafted and adopted. The actual importance of these documents is somewhat varied. Uh, there's always, uh, somewhat inevitably, a gap between the intentions of an organization as laid out in formal documents and what that organization can actually accomplish in reality. Uh, there's always the inertia of how things are already being done, and there's a common tendency to overestimate how many tasks can actually be accomplished by the limited number of cadre available to carry out those tasks. But in the case of the Sixth Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, this tendency for aspirational political documents to not quite match what will actually be carried out in practice was, I think, more exaggerated than usual. Uh, the circumstances would certainly lead you to expect this to be the case. The severe repression that the Chinese Communist Party had been experiencing meant that much of the mass work that the party had been conducting, uh, for example, with workers or with women in major urban areas, had been smashed. In this context, then, the guidance for developing party work in the women's movement or in forming trade unions uh, that was contained in the Congress resolutions on those topics was contingent on first rebuilding something of what had been lost, a, a task that would never really be accomplished in the ways that the Sixth Congress envisioned. Uh, likewise, uh, what was the real meaning of resolutions on land or on the peasant struggle 
when almost no one at the Congress itself was deeply involved in the intricacies of those struggles and all the complexity that emerged in the context of carrying out land reform and present organizing in practice. Uh, as the Sixth Congress was taking place, the high tide of land reform and party recruitment, uh, which we discussed back in episode 88, was taking place in the Jingangshan. Uh, that experience would ultimately be much more meaningful to the Chinese Revolution than what was written at the Congress in the resolutions on land or on the peasant struggle. Uh, and as long as we're discussing the disconnect between the Congress and the Jingangshan experience, it is worth noting that even as Bukharin and the Congress more generally discussed the problem of the influence of petty bourgeois ideology and especially peasant ideology on the Communist Party, and recognized that the party was made up of a majority of members who came from peasant backgrounds, there were actually very few actual members from peasant backgrounds at the Congress. A report to the Congress which discussed the party membership claimed that of 130,194 party members, 76.6% were peasants, 10.9% were workers, 7.2% were intellectuals, 0.82% were soldiers, and 3.5% uh, were in the category of other. However, among delegates to the Congress, 51% uh, were workers, 45% intellectuals, and only 7% were peasants. Uh, of course, this adds up to 103%. So that tells us something about the exactitude of the source I'm using here. But I think that even if we're rightfully skeptical about specific numbers, uh, the general idea of there being massively overrepresented, over, overrepresented intellectuals and workers at the Congress compared to peasants is accurate. Now, it's not surprising that urban people would be more likely to be at a Congress, and the obstacles for basic-level party members from rural villages to rise out of those villages to become party leaders uh, was an even greater feat than for urban workers arising from the basic masses in the cities. But still, I think uh, this reflects how the rural party and the most advanced rural experience that was being carried out in the remote base area of the Jingangshan was at some remove from the milieu of the Congress. In any case, we can infer from the absence of the Congress of actual participants in the advanced rural revolutionary process that was going on at the time that the resolutions on land and on the peasant movement uh, were drafted uh, did not really represent the most advanced thinking in the party on these questions. Perhaps the disconnect between the wishes of the Congress and what reality would actually serve up to the communist movement in China is best captured by the new Constitution's provision that, because of the importance of party congresses as the supreme decision-making body of the party, that the party would hold a congress annually going from here on out. In actual fact, the next party congress wouldn't take place until 1945, 17 years later. There are a couple of small points that I found in the resolutions of the congress that I want to point out just because they're of some interest. In the draft resolution on work in military affairs, there is one par there's a there's a one paragraph long section titled "The Assistance of Fraternal Parties," which reads, quote, "The Sixth National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party requested the Executive Committee of the Communist International to plead for assistance from fraternal parties to the Chinese Communist Party in various aspects." For example, to send people to assist the CCP in practical work, material aid, 
to devise means to break up imperialist troops sent to China, etc. End quote. I found it very interesting that they were thinking in terms of using foreign nationals from the various imperialist countries that occupied China to try to subvert the troops from those countries who were in China. Uh, if I ever find any evidence of any actual attempts to carry this out, I'll try to find enough material to put an episode together on it. Although to my knowledge right now, uh, this effort never got put into practice. Another piece of a resolution that I think is very interesting is the section on propaganda in the resolution on propaganda work. That resolution has three parts, well, one on agitation, another on propaganda, and a final section titled publications. What's really interesting to me here is that the section on propaganda is mostly concerned with raising the theoretical level of party members. It's clear that agitation is aimed outside the party as part of mobilizing the masses, and then propaganda is mainly discussed in relation to educating the party membership. I want to read out some of this section because I think it gives us a good sense of the general theoretical level of the party membership at this time, and so it's a kind of window into the mental life of the party. All right, we'll begin reading here with point 11. The, the first nine points are um, dealing with agitation, and the tenth point of this resolution uh, was the first point on propaganda, and it's it's a, just a more general point. I don't think it's something I need to read out. So, point 11, quote, In order to carry out the political training of party members on a large scale, we must do the following. A. Establish various secret cells under the factory, street, village, and school cells, and appoint ex experienced propagandists to lead them. We must also draw up training programs suitable for these various kinds of cells and for such political understanding. We should pay special attention to elucidating the present political tasks and slogans of the party. B. Because of our secret working conditions, lack of good leaders, obstacle in obstacles in recruiting large numbers of party members into cells, and difficulties in advancing cell work, it is necessary to develop the self-cultivation of party members. The propaganda committees of the various party branches and the comrades responsible for this kind of work should compile outlines, designate reference books and magazines, organize secret libraries, and use other methods to help as much as possible the comrades who are engaged in self-cultivation. In order to lessen the difficulties in this kind of work, we should publish a large number of political books. The style and contents of these books should be as easily understandable as possible and suitable to the level of our party comrades. Party newspapers should also pay great attention to this question. C. Some of our party comrades are still illiterate. We must make these comrades eliminate this phenomenon by organizing cells similar to common people's schools to help them or by giving them individual training. Among the non-party masses, workers and peasants, the party should organize schools and common people's schools in order to eliminate illiteracy and use these schools as a basis of political training. Point 12. In order to promote the theoretical understanding of the activists, we must organize short courses. The time of and the number of students in these courses should be determined by circumstances with the condition that all must be kept secret. The task of such short courses is to study the fundamental questions of the proletarian revolution, Leninism, and other theories. Very obviously, it is possible to achieve good results from these courses if there are good directors and students. 
Naturally, attention should be paid to the reference books and textbooks supplied to them. From among these party activists, outstanding comrades are selected to continue to develop their theoretical understanding in other situations in relatively tranquil circumstances. Uh, Point 13. One of the basic conditions for propaganda work is that we must utilize libraries of various social organizations. Under the secret working conditions of the party, libraries can be changed into open means for developing the influence of our party over the petty bourgeoisie and the intellectuals. Very obviously, this task is not meant to imply that the party need not establish its own secret libraries. Point 14. Apart from libraries, bookstores operated by organizations of our party should also serve as an open means for propaganda work. Point 15. An additional means of propaganda is that our party comrades join various societies related to science, new drama, and literature. Local party headquarters should use participation in meetings of these groups to present Marxist reports and proposals and reports on Soviet Russia as a basis for expanding their propaganda work and for exploring all open possibilities. Uh, End quote. Let's move on now to examine the overall strategic orientation that came out of the Congress. We've already gotten a taste of it from Bukharin's talk about the nature of the Chinese Revolution two episodes ago. In its overall orientation, the Congress affirmed that the basic tasks of the Chinese Revolution involved developing the anti-feudal movement in the countryside and expelling imperialism from the country as part of carrying out a democratic revolution. However, there were two other important considerations here that affected how the Chinese Communist Party would proceed to try to carry out this democratic revolution in the immediate future. The first of these considerations was the idea that we discussed in episode 102 that the world revolution was entering a new third period of global revolutionary struggle, which would be one of great opportunities for carrying out revolutions around the world. Therefore, as the world entered this new phase, communist parties would need to be poised to launch uprisings to take advantage of those opportunities. What this meant was, even though the past year of blind actionism had been criticized as being putschist and overly inclined to adventuristic military actions, in the upcoming period, many of these policies might actually be seen as being now appropriate given the development of the objective conditions for revolution. So, while the documents coming out of the 6th Congress contained admonitions that the party still needed to avoid the errors of putschism on the one hand and opportunism on the other hand, in practice, it is going to be a pretty blurry line between putschism on the one hand and trying to take advantage of a perceived change in objective conditions that now favored armed uprisings on the other hand. Uh, This difficulty is going to be expressed in something that is going to end up being called the Lili-San line. Uh, Just to give you a bit of a preview of of where we will be going in this podcast in the relatively near future, this is how the Lili-San line was summed up in a short book titled A Basic Understanding of the Communist Party of China that was published in Shanghai in 1974 and which attempted to codify many of the lessons learned during the Mao years related to issues surrounding the organization and life of a communist party. Um, this is in an endnote which gave a quick summary of the 10 major line struggles that had occurred in the Chinese Communist Party up to that point. 
Quote, the third struggle was between the line of Chairman Mao and the line of Li Li San. Li Li San had been a member of a branch of the Communist Party of China in France before returning to China in 1921 and had participated in trade union organizing. He considered that the main role of the revolutionary process was to be played by the workers, acting by themselves, and gave prime importance to the cities. Between June and September 1930, he called for a general uprising in the key cities and a general offensive by the entire Red Army against these cities. This orientation caused very heavy losses in the party's underground organizations in the areas controlled by the Guomindang. In September 1930, Li Lisan's errors were rectified by the third plenary session of the Sixth Central Committee of the party and at the fourth plenary session of the, of the Central Committee in January 1931, he was completely eliminated from the leadership of the party by the new left faction headed by Wang Ming. I think there's a, a lot more detail and nuance to be given uh, when we explore this in, uh, in this podcast. Um, but um, this description of the Li Li San line serves as a nice bridge to the second major consideration that will affect how the Communist Party oriented itself strategically coming off of the Sixth Congress. If, as Bukharin had stated, one of the main problems that was affecting the Communist Party was the influence of ideas rooted in the peasantry, the explanation that Bukharin and many of the Chinese communists at the Congress found for this problem was the large numbers of number of peasants in the Communist Party membership compared to workers. In their thinking, the best way to address this problem was to recruit more workers, and in particular to put these workers into leading positions in the party. Without more workers, it was thought that the working class could not exercise leadership over the peasantry. Or, to phrase the same issue in the realm of ideas, it was thought that truly communist ideas about changing the world would be constantly subverted by ideas rooted in the petty bourgeois social relations that corresponded to peasant production, uh, unless more workers could be brought into the party. The Congress's political resolution put the issue like this. Quote, The major task of the party is to win over the majority of the working class, secure their active support for the vanguard of the proletariat, the Communist Party, and induce them to believe in the Communist Party and, con and consciously accept its leadership. Full attention should be paid to the labor movement, especially to industrial workers. Only thus can the leadership of the working class over the peasantry be strengthened. End quote. And the outline for a resolution on organization, uh, which is all we have of that resolution, put the problem this way. Quote, the party's proletarian elements have grown fewer in number, while the number of peasant members has exceeded that of our proletarian comrades by seven times. The peasants' consciousness will influence the party's organizational line. So the idea coming out of the Sixth Congress was that in order to actually lead the democratic revolution in an appropriate way, it was necessary to exercise proletarian leadership of the peasantry. And in order to exercise proletarian leadership over the peasantry, it was necessary to have a larger number of actual workers in the party. So, even though the immediate tasks of the democratic revolution indicated a focus on the countryside in order to lead the peasantry against the landlords, it was thought that this could not be done in a good way unless the party had more workers in it. 
and these workers were not going to be recruited by focusing on the countryside. So even though the main tasks of the revolution were in the countryside, it was going to be necessary to put a major focus on struggles that would lead to recruiting workers so that those workers could then somehow help to guarantee a correct political orientation to the decisive struggle in the countryside. This perceived need to win over large numbers of workers to lead the peasants led Bukharin in his opening speech to state that, quote, at no time should we say that the party cannot struggle for the small local demands or for the day-to-day needs of the working class, end quote. This perceived need to develop struggles that would recruit workers on the one side and uh, need to develop the rural struggle to uh, advance the democratic revolution on the other side leaves a lot of room for interpretation in terms of how the party should actually distribute its forces and what struggles should be emphasized and de-emphasized. You can't take advantage of the opportunities of the third period if you don't have enough organization in place to lead the peasants in armed struggle. But you can't lead the peasants the way you want to if you don't have enough workers in the party. So how are you going to distribute your forces Where are you going to put your organizing efforts? How are you going to balance uh, these needs of the revolution? So we'll see how the Communist Party deals with this contradiction in some upcoming episodes. At the end of the Congress, the delegates elected a new 23-member Central Committee, which met on July 19th, right after the end of the Congress, and elected the Politburo, a new Politburo, which had uh, seven full members and seven alternate members. The following day, the Politburo met and elected a worker and trade union leader from Wuhan, Shang Zhongfa, as the new general secretary. Um, I've read in one source that Shang defeated Zhou Enlai for this position, uh, although there are other sources that claim that the um, common turn strongly indicated it wanted Shang for this position, so uh, I'm not entirely sure how credible the source is that claims that Zhou Enlai was defeated in an election for this position. Um, So um, anyways, just letting you guys know, there's some things out there that say Zhou Enlai ran for general secretary here and was defeated and other sources that kind of indicate that Shang was just kind of put there by the common turn. The election of Shang Zhongfa as general secretary was one way in which the communists tried to immediately put into effect the policy of putting workers in command of the party. However, even though Shang had played a major role in leading strikes against warlords in support of the Northern Expedition and had been a party member since 1921, he was not really cut out to play the overall leading role. Uh, This is definitely a case where someone was chosen more for their identity as a worker than for their capacity as a leading cadre. Um, here is um, here are a couple quotes from Zhang Guotao's autobiography, giving his thoughts on Shang Zhongfa. Quote, During the Congress, the activities of Shang Zhongfa, who had been chairman of the Hubei Provincial General Trade Union during the Wuhan period, also caused people to look askance at him. After the Wuhan split in 1927, he came to Moscow as the Communist Party's representative to the Comintern, where he was regarded as the prototype of the Chinese proletariat. 
He also followed Miff's maneuverings in all respects. Thus, his status was enhanced with the passing of time while he learned a few platitudes about Marxism-Leninism. During the Congress, Miff and Chen Xiaoyu, remember that's uh, the real name of Wang Ming, used him as their trump card in denouncing our errors. Shang Chongfa boldly claimed that he was the successor to Chen Dushu. He assumed an even more patriarchal attitude than Chen Dushu, often rebuking certain comrades during the Congress and invoking his pet phrase, this is the correct line of the Comintern. As a matter of fact, he was by no means a man worthy of respect, but was somewhat like a rogue. Both Li Li San and Shang Ying, who, who had contacts with him, knew his background and often ridiculed his behavior on the sly. Most of us believed that he could not shoulder the heavy responsibilities of a leader, and, he, and we resented his miffy airs. However, as the Chinese Communist Party lacked the leadership core and the appropriate person to take his place, we had to endure him for the time being. End quote. And here, a little later in the autobiography, uh, Zhang refers back to Shang Zhongfa. Quote, Shang Zhongfa had become the party secretary general after the Sixth Congress of the Communist Party, but he was almost forgotten by everybody due to his incompetence. While Li Li San was director of the propaganda department, Li handled many problems for the Central Committee. End quote. So, while Zhang Guotao was certainly not an unbiased observer here, uh, there's a real reason why the political line that's going to come to be associated with the period when Shang Zhongfa was general secretary is known as the Li Li San line and not the Shang Zhongfa Fa line. Shang simply is not going to exercise true political leadership of the party, despite his position as general secretary. And we'll see how this develops in future episodes. After the Congress, Zhang Guotao and Chu Chu Bai are going to be kept in Moscow as representatives of the Chinese Communist Party to the Comintern, a maneuver which is meant to remove the main representatives of the right and left wings of the party out of day-to-day affairs in China. But we'll see both of them back in action in China in future years. With the Congress over, you may be wondering how all these delegates were safely transported back to China. Well, thankfully, there is a memoir that gives a nice account of how this was accomplished. Quote, because they were urgently needed in China, delegates had to be sent back there at the earliest possible date. Groups of five to six of them departed separately and at staggered intervals. As soon as one group had safely crossed the Russian border and reached a designated spot, the next group would depart from the site of the Congress. While delegates awaited their turn to depart, Comintern authorities gave them and the Sun Yat-sen University students who had worked at the Congress military training. A Russian officer conducted this military training program. They learned how to use the basic weapons manufactured in each country, techniques of street fighting, techniques of guerrilla warfare, and other practical facets of military activity. The program lasted only one month, by which time the delegates and all of the Sun Yat-sen University students uh, who were going back to China, who had worked at the Congress, uh, had left for the real battlefields in China. At that time, travel between Russia and China was a highly dangerous undertaking for a Chinese communist. Yet, because of careful planning by the Secret Service people of the Comintern, in close cooperation with the GPU, 
everyone made it uneventfully back to China. Um, the GPU was um, just uh, the, the precursor to the KGB. Um, the delegates made the trip to China by way of three routes. The first route was through Europe. Those who went this way traveled in the guise of students or rich merchants. Needless to say, only a few delegates enjoyed this privilege because of the high cost involved. Uh, Joe and Lai and his wife, for example, took this route. The second route involved taking the International Express, a luxury train with a dining car, to Manjuli, just on the Chinese side of the Sino-Russian border in Manchuria, a trip that took nine days. The third route was to take the Siberian Express, a slower, plainer train with no dining car, to Sedanka Station near Vladivostok, a trip of 12 days. At Sedanka, they caught a train to Wuchan Station on the Sino-Russian border. In both Sedanka and Wuchan, the travelers were put up at a rest house. The rest house in Wuchan, however, had its doors and windows tightly shuttered, and the delegates were admonished to speak only in hushed voices. Security precautions were far stricter for the delegates who went to Wuchan, which was close to the Chinese border, than at Sedanka, which was well inside Russia. The Russians at both rest houses were experts in smuggling people back and forth across the border. The travelers stayed at both Sedanka and Wuchan for a day or two or more, depending on circumstances. During these stopovers, Russians carefully went over their luggage and their clothing. If the clothes that the delegates wore were judged unsuited to their assumed travel identity, the delegates had to be suitably reclothed. Before the travelers passed the Russian scrutiny, they had to be appropriately dressed from head to toe. Most important of all, they were not allowed to carry over one sheet of paper or anything made in Russia. When everything was in order, the travelers got in a horse-drawn carriage on a dark night and cautiously drove off. When they neared the Chinese side of the border, they went ahead on foot, nervously inching their way along as best they could, with a Russian guide leading them. Soon they had crossed the border illegally and stood on Chinese soil. Then they were taken to a small cafe, which was the cover for a communication center run by Russian agents. The moment we stepped in the cafe's door, our tension fell away and we relaxed, feeling exhausted and hungry. A cup of steaming coffee and a snack wonderfully revived us. Then we rested our taut and weary bodies. The mission of escorting Russian agents ended in the coffee shop. It was up to the delegates themselves to deal with the problems that lay ahead. Occasionally, some inept travelers inadvertently revealed their identities or by their conspicuous nervousness attracted the attention of the Chinese police and were detained for questioning. Fortunately, bribes apparently were capable of solving any problem. Usually, the police gave free passage to, to the ones they detained as soon as their pockets were filled with money. When the travelers stopped over at Sedanka, Comintern agents gave, them, gave each of them some Chinese currency and some U.S. dollars. The amount was in d direct proportion to the person's status. Delegates, for example, received more than students. But even the smallest amount was adequate for the traveler to reach his destination. Also, each traveler received enough money to cover living expenses for one month, just in case he encountered difficulty in establishing contact with the party as his at his destination, a distinct possibility under the white terror in China at, the at that time. It was, of course, important that, should no contact be established, the traveler have enough money to go elsewhere or, at least, to feed himself. It cannot be denied that the Russians were extremely prudent and that they thought of all eventualities and provided travelers with the means to cope with them. 
It was late fall when the last of the delegates had left for China, except for those who stayed on in Moscow in connection with party work, such as Chu Chu Bai, Zhang Guotao, and others. End quote. All right, uh, with our delegates safely escorted back to China, I think we are done with the Sixth Congress. Before I end things here, though, I just want to acknowledge all the positive comments and contributions that have come in the direction of the podcast these last few weeks. Uh, this has been a difficult year for me to find the time to produce the show, and it's really encouraging to receive the words and other forms of support that people have been sending. Um, it seems like there have been a lot of listeners who are missing the show while I was prioritizing some other things. So I just wanted to put out this uh, general thank you to all of you who have been sending those uh, good vibes my way. All right. Uh, talk to you next time. <laughs>